0: Our epistle reading for today is also the sermon text, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called The holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory. Overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. Jesse Tree.
1: Good morning. Well, they, they, uh, I'll just kind of do a little intro here. But, hey, I, I, I just want to say that uh, yesterday I came to um, how many were, were at Joel's wedding yesterday? Um, it was pretty amazing. At the end of the wedding they the uh, red and black brass band came marching through the sanctuary here with all this celebration and dancing and just parading all through the through the sanctuary. It was, it was quite a sight, and uh, it was really a joy just seeing what maybe real celebration should be, you know. Um, so that was just something that uh, they said to hang on. They had a surprise for us, and uh, it was pretty wonderful. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Father, we know that you work through our weaknesses by the power of Christ, by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would do that today. Work in hearts that don't want to hear your word. Work in my heart and work in in me that I may be clear. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word mightily in all of us today. Shape us. Lord, give us a desire to be with you, to be in your presence. Create in us a clean heart and lead us to you in an ever-stronger way. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Dave, I have the... Uh, I'm not using the, the lapel mic. As you could hear, it's in my pocket. <laughs> my dear, every day I miss you a little more. And today, I miss you like tomorrow. The knowledge that you're getting closer to the front makes me tremble every time I think of it. I wonder how you must feel. All I can do is pray and keep a hopeful heart. That's an excerpt from a a letter that was written to a soldier back in World War II. It said that soldiers back in that time, and probably... Any, any war before computers were writing an average of six letters a week to their loved ones. so many relationships were continued on at long distance while while a soldier was away at war. In fact, what, what some would do uh, what, what, what a lot of women would do is they, they would they would spray a little perfume on the letter in order for their loved one to to kind of get to, to smell them, you know, even though they're 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 across the ocean. And some would even put lipstick on their lips and then press it on to the, you know, sealed with a kiss. You know, they would they would seal the letter with a kiss. Because what they were wanting to do is they wanted to send as much of themselves as they could to their loved ones, to their husband, to their boyfriend, to their girlfriend. They wanted to send some of their self to them so that they would remember them. And even more, that they would long for them more. They'd pick up that letter and smell it. Oh, I want to be home. I want to be with her. Now, for those who unfortunately never got to reunite with their loved ones because they never returned from war, those letters that they received from their soldier overseas was more valuable than ever before. Because it was the only way they could hold on to that relationship they once had with them. It was the only sense of them that they had. And they held on to them for dear life. But those that did reunite, when those soldiers came home and they did reunite with with their loved ones, most likely those letters got put away. Most likely any trinkets that got sent throughout that time of war got put away. Now, does that mean they weren't valuable anymore? Oh, they were valuable. They're put away. They're probably held on for life so they could be shared with with other family and with kids and grandkids. But they're not necessary. They're not necessary because the relationship is now advanced. It's it's moved to the next level. They're now face-to-face, holding each other, loving each other, with each other, day-to-day. They don't need the perfume on the paper. They don't need the letters. And you see, to remain dwelling, if, if, if you still, if your, your loved one comes back and you're continuing to remain in, in, these, in these letters and you're just dwelling on the letters and you're dwelling on the perfume and, and the lipstick on the, on the envelopes and you're ignoring the person who wrote them, what does that mean? You're rejecting that person. You're rejecting that person for whom they were longing the whole time, the whole relationship. You end up rejecting them. See, God longed to be with his people from the beginning. There was brokenness in the garden, you know, that, that, that when Adam and Eve uh, were with God, they were with him face to face. They were walking with him in the cool of the garden, and they sinned, and he cast them out. But God didn't stop pursuing his people. God continued to pursue his people. And with, with the covenant he made with Abraham, Genesis 17, he cut a covenant with Abraham, meaning they, 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 they killed an animal and split it, and, and, and it was a blood covenant that said, if I, don't hold, if I don't hold to this covenant, this promise, may what happened to the animal happen to me. He and Abraham made that promise, made that covenant, but it was a covenant instituted by God. And from that time, God was sending love letters and other tokens of his love and faithfulness to his people saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. In the wilderness, God took the next step. God took the next step in being present with his people where his presence was in the midst of something called a tabernacle. He provided a place for this presence to dwell, for his glory to come and dwell in the the wilderness. In their midst and a way to relate with them, or a way for them to relate with him through worship. That's when he established his covenant with Moses. And Yahweh promised through his prophet even more. He promised through Jeremiah that there was going to come a time where there was going to be a better union of God. More of God being with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He wasn't done with the tabernacle. He wasn't done with the temple. He said, there will come a time where my law will be on your hearts, where my spirit will be within you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that takes on such a greater depth of gravity. It takes on such a greater weight at that point when we become one with him. And this new covenant was inaugurated, as many of you know, through and instituted by Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious conquering through the resurrection. That's where we are. That's where the Hebrews were. When this letter was written to the Hebrews, this is where they were. They were in the midst of this new covenant instituted by Christ. And last, last week, Sam preached from chapter 8 about the shadows of the past, talk about how the old covenant was serving the shadows and copies of things to come. The old covenant, or the first covenant as it's referred to sometimes, was about worshiping in a tent, a tabernacle made with human hands. Now, if we didn't have chapter divisions, then the end of chapter 8 would say this, Well, then we would just we're going to start on uh, verse 13 the last verse of chapter 8 and it says this and speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete god makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away the author of hebrews is calling the hebrews to trust christ and to trust in him alone but what's happening they're wanting to go back to the old way they're wanting to go back to the temple worship And he's calling them to reject going back to the old. What they were wanting to do, you see, was they were wanting to go back to the covenant practices. They were wanting to go back to the letters, to the lipstick, to the perfume. They were happy with that. Why were they doing that? They were afraid. Their faith was faltering in the midst of a fearful time. Can you relate to that? So he starts off in chapter 9 to explain to them, what you want is obsolete. What you're wanting to go back to isn't necessary anymore. In fact, it's a rejection of the one who is calling you, who is pursuing you, who is the one who actually cleansed you. He starts off in chapter 1. Now, even the first covenant... Back in uh, verse uh, verse thirteen of chapter eight, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness or sanctuary that was made with hands. Now contrast that with what he says in nine twenty four about about a tent not made with hands. He's comparing that. He's contrasting it with with what is heavenly. He's contrasting the earthly with the heavenly, heavenly being better. The tabernacle in this case was earthly, meaning it was less than ideal. It was made with hands as opposed to this heavenly sanctuary to which we were looking forward to. Now you might wonder, why does the author discuss the tabernacle in the wilderness as opposed to the most current place of worship for these Hebrews, the temple? Why wouldn't he bring up the temple? Well, remember back in chapters 3 and 4 he refers to them, he compares them to the wilderness Israel. And when he's talking about the Old Covenant, he's referring to the Mosaic Covenant, to that one, that covenant that was made with Moses. And that started with Moses in the wilderness with the tabernacle. And so he starts there. What was this place? What we, what we see here is, is that there's, there's going to be he's, these, these ten verses. He's showing them that the thing you want to go back to First of all, it's an obsolete place. It's an outdated, obsolete place, and it's an outdated, obsolete practice. It's an obsolete relationship that you're wanting to go back to. Verse 2, he says, For a tent was prepared. According to the pattern set by Yahweh for Moses. Where do you see this? You see this in Exodus 25. I was going to have Exodus 25 read today, but it seemed kind of long. So I figured we'll, we'll talk enough about it as we go through. So I want a little bit of a preface to Exodus 25. So uh, we, Pete read Exodus 24. But, but there was a pattern that Yahweh gave to Moses. The tabernacle just, he didn't just say build a tent. He said, build it the way I tell you, and exactly the way I tell you. And there was a reason for that. And so what was in this tent? Well, the first section, he goes on, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Now, if you refer to your PowerPoint in your liturgy there, one day. Um, It's kind of nice to have a diagram for this. It's it's nice to have a visual because it gives us an idea of of what this, of, of the diagram of this tabernacle. Now I will say this is not, if you notice, we're not spending a ton of time in the tabernacle. He doesn't even name all of the elements or all of the furnishings in the tabernacle. There's a lot more to talk about. We could do a Sunday school class on the tabernacle, and that might be a good idea, huh, Um, Dave? So um, that may be something to consider because it's worth knowing about. These things were put in place because God had a purpose for them, for his people. So let's just talk briefly about them. So there was the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presents. Now, you see that, that the, uh, this, this diagram here, what you have outside is the outer court. This was an area where the, where the people could go, where they could bring their sacrifices. Um, and you had the altar the, the, the altar of sacrifice and the bronze basin. We're not going to talk about those today because uh, that would take too long. So, but there was the lampstand. This is the menorah. You're familiar with the menorah that you see at Hanukkah or you see in, in uh, Jewish celebrations. The menorah was a beautiful, large, heavy lamp. Very heavy. Its dimensions and its instructions for, for crafting it are in Exodus 25 31 through 40. It was made out of one piece of hammered gold and laid over probably a a frame, I believe, of acacia wood. So it was wood, and it was overlaid with gold. One piece of gold. You know how much that piece of gold weighed? You know, 75 pounds. About 75 to 100 pounds was the weight of this menorah. That's a talent of gold. And it was placed there. But why was it placed there? It was placed there for a purpose of representing now, there, there, are, there are different commentaries that, that, that say different things. Dave and I was just speaking of this. Um, some say that, that this was the tree of life, representing the tree of life. If you look at the at the instructions for the menorah, how it was to be built, there's really, you see most of them with, with uh, curved, a curved shape to, to the branches. It's supposed to look like a tree. But there really isn't an instruction. Sometimes you'll see straight branches coming out. There and, and what, what, what Exodus says is that God showed Moses the pattern. So he didn't, everything isn't written down about how they were to do it, but God showed Moses how it was to be done. But from archaeological discoveries and, and images, it looks like most of them were, were, were curved. But this is God's provision reminding the, the Israelites of God's provision for light, God's provision for life, and God's provision for olives, because these were lit with olive oil, choice olive oil, the good stuff. And olives were such a staple of the Israelites' diet of their life. And it was a reminder every day to see that God was providing. Also, this was, this was the only source of light in the tabernacle. And so think about this. Now, now what you see here on, on this image is you see the outer court. You see the north side. You see what you don't see is outside of that court. Outside of that court are the tribes of Israel setting up and camped. And what you have is the presence of God in the midst of the camp. And think about what that would look like on a dark night. When you look out and the menorah is burning. And keeping that part of the tabernacle, you see the light of the Lord in your midst, reminding them, I am with you. Reminding them, Emmanuel, God is with us. One other thing is, is, it reminds them of their deliverance because if you if you look at the instructions, it's all about almond blossoms and and it's seems to be uh, 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 mimicking an, an almond tree. And Aaron's staff, if you look at Numbers seventeen eight. It budded with almond blossoms. And gave almonds. Aaron's staff was, an, was, was from an almond tree. It was an almond branch. Okay, so God was reminding of his, of his provision of light, life, and deliverance through the lamp. Then you have the table. The table is next, and that's across from the lamp, as you can see. <clears throat> Directions for that are in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. That table is, it's, it's all this Old Testament measurement is given in cubits. Cubits is, is the elbow to the tip of the finger, and it's about, it, most people just consider it 18 inches. So if that's the case, if we, if we consider a cubit as 18 inches, then this table is 36 inches wide, 18 inches deep, and 27 inches high. So that was a table for showbread. So the, the table was, was there across from the, from the menorah, and then there were, there were six loaves. There were two stacks of six loaves on this table. And that bread was called the bread, the showbread, or the bread of the presence, or the bread before the face. It was bread in the presence of the Lord. And that bread was never to leave that table. Those 12 loaves were put there, and every Sabbath they were changed. And the priests got to eat the bread that was there. Where you might know of this bread in the New Testament is when the Pharisees were complaining to Jesus about uh, eating the, the grains on the Sabbath. And he reminded them of what happened with David and his men when they were fed the showbread, when the, the priest Abiathar was feeding them the, the showbread when they were hungry, in the will, uh, when they were coming through. That was the showbread that the priest fed to David and his men. So this was even supposed to be on the table when the table was being transported. It was always to have the showbread. And what that represented was the 12 tribes of Israel. It was an offering to the Lord in the presence of the Lord, also reminding them that God is the one who provides our bread. God is the one who provides us with our sustenance. They were constantly reminded of that. Leviticus adds something there that that, that on top of those stacks of bread was frankincense, a perfume. And incense. Now those are the two things that are talked about in the holy place. And then we go to the most holy place in verse 3. Behind the second curtain, this is key. This is more of the point of what the author is saying. There was a curtain. There was a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And that second curtain, in there, there was the golden altar of Incense. Which was most likely... Now, if you look on the, on the uh, diagram here, you'll see the altar of incense is in the holy place. Well, that's what the instructions for the altar of incense say. They're supposed to be, it's supposed to be in the holy place. So why does the author of Hebrews put it in the most holy place? Because there was also a golden censer... That was in that was where where the priest came and took the, the incense from the altar of incense and brought it on the day of atonement into the holy place into the most holy place, and a lot of commentators believe that's what they what the author of Hebrews is talking about that there was a golden uh, a golden censer for incense. So what does that represent? The golden altar of incense or the censer is the prayers of the people. It represents the prayers of the people. Psalm 141-2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And if you're familiar with Revelation, Revelation um, 5-8 has prayers as incense uh, or as prayers of the saints. It says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. It's the prayers of the people rising up to God. And then you have the central piece, the Ark of the Covenant. This was the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. It was a box. It was a box made out of acacia wood, and then it was covered with gold. It was a beautiful piece. It had cherubim, had, had these, these angels that were, that were on top, on the cover. And it was all covered in gold. It was beautiful. Inside were the tablets of the covenant, it says the gold, uh, the, the manna and Aaron's staff, it's believed that, that they were actually set next to the, to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. But this was where, once a year, the priest would enter on the, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And they would go before the mercy seat and make atonement for the sins, their sins and the people's sins. The cherubim of glory is what they were called here, overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he goes on and says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I guess I did speak a little bit in detail about these things. <laughs> but it does say that he, you know, it's, he's, he's making the point that there was an old system, but it's now Obsolete. And by the way, regarding the, the Ark of the Covenant, why would Yahweh, do you think, have such a beautiful piece that nobody would ever see? Think about that. A high priest would see it one time a year. And then, you know, even when it's transported, there are instructions for how the Kohathites are supposed to, to get blue fabric and cover it before it's even moved. So no one ever saw this. I like what one commentator says. He says, this is about faith. No man comes to the Father unless he believes. Uh, um, Eleven six, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. There's such an emphasis on faith in the book of Hebrews and with the author of the Hebrews that that is so much about what he is getting at. He's saying, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And he says they didn't enter into that rest because of what? Unbelief. God was preparing, God was was pointing his people to have faith in him, to trust that he is with them in their midst, even when they couldn't see him. So this was separated by a curtain. And that's one thing that we'll talk about briefly is, is this veil. Exodus 26, 31 through 35 talks about this veil. This veil was, it, there, there was a, a veil that, or a curtain that where you could get into the holy place. And the priests were, were operating there. That could be opened up. In fact, people could look in there and see the menorah from time to time or, or, or the, the table with the showbread. But the Holy of Holies had one curtain, one piece. It was not easy to get into. It was beautiful. It had images of cherubim on, of angels. It was made of fine linen, twisted yarn, purple, scarlet, blue. By the way, you ever want to find out how they dyed the yarn, the fabrics? It's amazing how many of these little sea creatures they had to pull out and take apart and take this certain gland in order to make the dyes. It was amazing. All of these things were coming from living creatures that God demanded would be certain colors, certain qualities, all to house his presence. Now he goes on to verse 6 and talks about the obsolete practices. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. You see, in the first section, he he calls these the first section and the second section. The first covenant and the second covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. The first section was for the priests for their daily sacrifices, for their daily work. They had to make sure that light, the lamp, was always trimmed, that the wicks were always trimmed, that there was enough oil, that it was always burning, that that light, that perpetual light was continuing on. Numbers 28 talks about their daily offerings. There were daily offerings, weekly offerings, monthly offerings. There were feast offerings. Verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes. Once again, making this point, there is a separation. There's a barrier between God and His people. In this old covenant, the high priest went there, and he did only once a year, and not without taking blood. Here's blood again, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This unintentional sins, I, I've heard it said, it's it's uh, akin to it's it's kind of compared with the the sin of of Hebrews 6, that rebellious sin where you reject Christ completely. These are sins for which we are seeking forgiveness. Always blood, and notice the priest had to Bring cleansing for himself as well. He had to bring the bull. And not only that, the places themselves, the holy place and the most holy place, had to be cleansed themselves before these rituals. Before these acts of worship, they had to be cleansed with blood as well. Something had to die in order for sins to be atoned for. Something had to give its life. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. That holy places, that is the most holy place. Notice that place is in plural there. That's referring to the Holy of Holies. It's not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. You see that first section represents the first covenant. That first section represents the old covenant, the old way, the obsolete covenant. He says which is symbolic for the present age, or better said, uh, the age then present, referring to that age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It cannot allow intimacy with God. It cannot allow that relationship to grow. It cannot allow that face-to-face relationship. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation in time when something changes. So why was such precision and demand for following Yahweh's pattern given in this? Why were there these precise instructions? Why was this even here? Well, it was to create the images that Yahweh wanted his people to know and to keep in their hearts. If I may use that illustration before At the opening. The things that were sent to the soldiers were the things the wife, the girlfriend, the family wanted them to have and to know that they would know, that they would know them, that they would remember them. It wasn't perfume from somebody else, it was their perfume. It wasn't somebody else's lips touching that 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 letter, it was their lips. And they said that this is what they wanted to send that soldier that he would know them. God gave these, these instructions in order to create the images that we would know him, that his people would know him, and long for him. Not only to know him, but to create a need, a longing for something more. Do we always have to stay outside the holy place? Do we always have to just see God from a distance? Just see that light? Come on. The old covenant, the law, the tabernacle, and later the temple, which was just a permanent tabernacle. They were all pointing somewhere. See, they were looking to a greater presence. They were pointing to a day when there would be a greater presence. As Isaiah said, the virgin will give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. God with us. There's something greater coming. And when that one was born in John 2, he's, he's recorded as saying destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. This one said after he died and rose again, he said everything written about me, everything written in the law and the prophets and the psalms. In other words the Old Testament it's written about me. Matthew 5, he said, talking about the law, I didn't come to get rid of it, I came to fulfill it. It is about me, is what that one was saying, that Emmanuel, Jesus was saying. He was saying a complete and perfect cleansing and a perfect sacrifice was coming. And when that comes, it'll be way greater than you could ever imagine. There will be no more need for a temple. There will be no more need for a tabernacle. You see, to cling to the old covenant is to reject Christ, is to reject the one who came to cleanse us completely. How does this apply to us? Well, how does fear affect your faith? How does fear of rejection, how does fear of persecution, how does fear of unbelief affect your faith? Maybe you don't want to run to a temple, but what is it you want to run to to keep you away from that intimacy with Christ? Remember the letters we send to our loved ones. The things we send to them point to us, give them something to long for. What Jesus said, He said, I am the light of the world. You don't need a menorah anymore. You don't need the lamp because I am the light. Bread of presence. Manna, I'm the bread. I'm the bread who came down from heaven. In fact, Moses didn't give it to you. My father gave it to you. And my father's giving me to you, he said. I am the bread of life. You feed on me, you'll never die. That word for tent, that word for tabernacle. Well, John introduces Jesus in John 1 and he says... The word became flesh and he dwelled among us. He tabernacled with us. He came and tabernacled with us. And that tabernacle that was shrouded with the glory of God back in the wilderness, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was overshadowed with the glory of God himself. Proving that he was more than just some man. He was the one who was, who the, in whom the glory of God was dwelling. He was the, new, he, he was, he was the one he, who... I'm sorry. He was our new temple. He will be our new temple. Understand that after Jesus rose from the dead, there's still something to point to. There's still more coming, brothers and sisters. Emmanuel came, and there's going to be Emmanuel like we have never known it before. Hear the book of Revelation here. There's a New Jerusalem. You want to know what's interesting about the New Jerusalem is it has a square measurement in the same way that the Holy of Holies has. Perfectly square. Except this is much larger. Because it's housing God's people. It's just not housing a priest. And listen to this, verse 21 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city. You know why I saw no temple in the city? John says, for its temple is the Lord. God the Almighty and the Lamb in the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. You know why? Because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is Jesus, our Savior. And he says, and I heard a loud voice, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, skene, that same word, that tabernacle, place of God, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Emmanuel is never before. Come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you that you... Promise us to be with us, to cleanse us, to give us what we could never give to ourselves, what we could never earn for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to be with us.